All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Life Church. I'm about to get my worship on, she said. All right. Well, hey, it is good to see all of you this morning. We're going to make our way back to our seats. We're going to get into today's text. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles. We're going to be drawing our main direction from the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. Mark 15 and then Luke 23. Mark 15 and then Luke 23. And I've kind of compiled these two together uh, to create one long uh, version of this part of the story of Christ on the cross. We're starting a new series today. As uh, Lindsay mentioned, we're doing a series called It Is Finished, But It's Not Over. It is finished, but it's not over. And so we're going to be traveling through the next couple of weeks, approaching Easter Sunday, looking at particularly Christ on the cross and what that entails and how it applies to our world and to our lives. So the next several weeks obviously are greatly, greatly important. Uh, Next week we'll be entering into what is described in the Bible as Triumphant Entry Sunday or Palm Sunday, Uh, Christ coming into Jerusalem to to descend upon uh, His crucifixion, His sacrifice. Uh, Then, of course, in the next weekend, Easter Sunday, lots of big things happening here, as uh, Lindsay pointed out. So just be paying attention to our Facebook page, our website, and, of course, uh, the bulletins that we pass out to you every week, uh, having those reminders and those details uh, about the coming Easter season. And as she mentioned, you know, the following week is Holy Week. That's the week of April the 15th. I just want to point out one particular day on there. Uh, They're all going to be real good, all going to be really, really well. Uh, done, but on Wednesday, April the 17th, we actually are co-host church that day, Uh, and so we're helping to uh, make sure the lunch happens that day, and that we just want to make sure we have a few folks from our church attend. You don't have to do anything by showing up uh, other than just show up and be a part of that particular day of worship, but each day does provide lunch. We're co-host that particular week, and um, that one's at Skyline Church of Christ, and so, I don't know, uh, this mic is doing a weird weird noise thing there. Um, But anyway, I just wanted to make sure we point that out to you. And then as she mentioned, kicking off May strong with water baptism. So I say all that to to not reiterate announcements. I say all that to say the life of New Life Church over the next four or five weeks is going to be really big. It's going to be really exciting as uh, folks come to Christ, folks coming back to Christ, folks getting water baptized. Uh, Just an exciting season. Uh, here uh, as we approach Easter. So let's look at our text today, combining Mark 15 and Luke 23, scriptures out of both, out of the New Living Translation. It reads, it'll be on the screen as well. It says, it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. And by this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. Let's bow our heads in prayer over this word today. Gracious God, we are so thankful and humbled that you would come in the form of your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty ultimately for our sins. But we are thankful that we have a Savior. We are thankful that the work you began, you were not done. You were still working things out in us. It was completed there on the cross, but you are continuing to work it out in our life, helping us to see and realize we need you every day. We don't need you just for our help, but we need you because it's in you, Christ Jesus, that you paid the price for our sin. We look to you in this season. We look to you today. May this story of Easter not just be so familiar that it has no life and power in us, but today by your spirit, I pray you would breathe fresh life into every one of us. Let the story of Easter truly resurrect within our hearts to be alive abundantly. We give you our time now. Speak to us. We're here to listen, and we want to receive in Jesus' name. And you can say amen. 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 The final words of a person before they die are very, very important. They come directly from the heart. I recently read about a pastor who was asked to speak for a member's mother's funeral. Her name was Ida, but her friends called her Polly. And her son had told the pastor that his mother had basically been unresponsive several hours prior to, to her death. And she had, didn't speak a word. And, but moments, right before she, she passed, right before she passed away, she opened her eyes and spoke clearly. She said, my name is Ida, but my friends call me Polly. Last words spoken from the heart. It got me curious, so I looked up some famous last words. That phrase has been going around a long time. You know, those will be uh, your f famous last words. So I looked up a few famous folks. I don't know how true some of these are, so because it's directly from the internet. And as you know, the internet tells no lies. <laughs> but nonetheless, it gets the point across. It was reported that blues singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going... But I'm going in the name of the Lord. Nostradamus 
was noted for saying, tomorrow at sunrise I shall no longer be here. And he wasn't. He was right. It was reported that Harriet Tubman, when she was passing, gathered her family around and they sang together. And her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. Leonardo da Vinci was, had been noted for saying, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. Hmm, I guess the Mona Lisa isn't that good, right? And John Wayne was reported for saying at his death as he turned to his wife and he said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. Jesus had last words. While hanging on the cross between heaven and earth, suffering immensely, gave seven final statements that reveal his heart to us. They're profound. First one is, Father, I forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second one he said was, today you will be with me in paradise. Thirdly, he said, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Number four, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, he said, I thirst. Number six, he said, it is finished. And number seven, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we're going to journey through these seven statements over the next three weeks. We're going to attempt to go through the first two today. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And today you will be with me in paradise. As I've titled today's message in this series, Forgiven and Free. Forgiven and Free. Jesus was betrayed. He was arrested. He was abandoned. He was tried. He was convicted. He was whipped violently. He was slapped mockingly. His hair and his beard were pulled out ruthlessly. He was spit on. Had a crown of thorns literally pressed down onto his head, down into his brow to the point of it made him bleed. He was nailed to an old rugged cross. And then he hangs there and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow. From the cross, Jesus is showing us that he offers us forgiveness no matter what. No matter what. No matter what we've done. And then also, with the, same, the cross that you and I have been called to carry as followers of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, not as a religion, but in a relationship with him, he calls us to take that same forgiveness that he offers us and let it empower us to then offer forgiveness to other people who might sting us with hurt. Oh, it's one thing to, for us to welcome forgiveness, to want forgiveness, to let forgiveness in and to ask for it. Absolutely, it feels wonderful to receive forgiveness. But then that same forgiveness from Christ is meant to empower us to offer and extend forgiveness to others who have somehow hurt us. I read this and it has stuck with me. If you never get healed from your hurt, 
you'll bleed on others who never cut you. Jesus elaborates on this in a conversation he has with Peter in Matthew 18. For sake of time, they're going to put these verses on the screen. Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not not seven times. Whew, thought you were going to say yeah. No, actually 70 times seven. 70 times seven. You know, the remedy to the hurt against us is found in forgiving those who have hurt us. And Jesus elaborates and he goes on to tell this parable, this story. He said a king said, he came to a time where he wanted to settle his accounts and bring them all up to date. And he went to his servants who had borrowed money from him. And one in particular had borrowed, borrowed millions from him. And he said, the time has come. We need to settle this now. The servant who owed him millions begged and pleaded for mercy. And he said, I can't. I just can't. I need more time. I need more time. I need more time. I can't fulfill my repayment. And the king had mercy on him, and it said he forgave his debt. That servant then went out and went after the ones who owed him some money, and he found one who owed him several thousands of dollars. And he told the man, now I have to settle my account. The same man said, I can't, I need more time. He pleaded and begged for mercy. That servant who was just forgiven his millions said, you don't have any more time, I'm going to throw you in jail until you can pay your debt. The king found out about it. The king came to the one whom he had forgiven the millions and said, Look, I forgave you millions, and this one who owed you thousands, you couldn't extend the same kind of courtesy and forgiveness that I extended to you. He said, Guess what? Time's up. In the jail you go until you can repay. And he ends this parable by saying this in verse 35. He says, That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to, get to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. If you never get healed from your hurt, you'll bleed on those who never cut you. The remedy to the hurt and trespasses against us is to extend forgiveness like we would want forgiveness extended to us. Jesus taught this in prayer. In, in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, part of that prayer is in, in teaching his disciples how to pray was forgive us of our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. In the Golden Rule, absolutely, a chapter later in chapter 12, 7 verse 12 of Matthew, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think a great Old Testament foreshadow of Jesus is found in the person of Joseph. I'm going to look there for a second in Genesis chapter 41. And again, for time's sake, it'll be on the screen. We're looking at Joseph. By this time, Joseph had become the second in command under Pharaoh's great regime in Egypt. As you know, Joseph didn't start out that way. Joseph started out with a, with a dream that God gave him, and his brothers hated it for him. And they ended up faking his death, selling him as a slave into Egypt. And, and it, while he was in Egypt, he was falsely accused, served years in prison, forgotten about. Until one day, he was able to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. And he was pulled out of prison and then ultimately seen the good that he was, the value of a person he was, God's favor on his life. Pharaoh ended up promoting him to be second in command over everything. Through all of that time... Joseph, 
all the wrongdoings, all the trespasses, Joseph didn't then take his power and use it against people. Joseph took his power and his platform to show that he forgave. Show that he forgave. And he was about to have, he had two children, and we're going to pick up there in chapter 41, verse um, 51. Joseph named his, his older son Manasseh, for he said, God had made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. How about that? At a time when Joseph could have named his kids anything, out of the forgiveness of his heart, he was able to name them something positive to showcase the outcome of my life, the the offspring of my life, the fruit of my life will not be bitter, will not be anger, it will not be resentment. Now, all this time that I've been separated from my family and all these trespasses that have been done unto me that were not fair and that were, that were not just, there was no truth in them, I will still not be what it could have made me to be. No, I will name my oldest Manasseh. God has made me forget all my troubles. I let it go. I'm not going to hold on to it. And God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. And then, and then... His family catches up to him. They're in need now. Famine has struck. They're in need of food. They're in need of grain. So they come to Egypt where Joseph was in charge of the storehouse of grain. For all these years, he had stored up and stockpiled, and now he was giving it out upon request. And his family came to him, and they recognized. They locked eyes. They saw each other for the first time after all of these years, and they knew, oh, wow, this is Joseph. He's the second in charge of Pharaoh what will he do to us? And here's what he says in verse chapter 50, verse 20. He said, you intended to harm me. That's all you wanted to do. You hated me. You wanted to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So no, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. He reassured them by speaking kindly to them. What an act of mercy. Joseph saying, you wanted to harm me, and in fact you did. But God used it and turned it around for my good. Here I am now in this mighty position, not to hold it over you, but to now help you. How can a person do such a thing when so, much, so many trespasses were done against him only because he chose to forgive? Only because he chose to forgive and not hold on to it. You know, we are not always aware of the travesty of our transgressions like we are of the transgressions that happen against us. We don't always think about the transgressions we commit against someone else as much as we do about the transgressions others do unto us. Jesus, from the cross, the first of seven final statements. Seven. We get seven. The first, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. They don't know what they are doing. Jesus shows us 
that it is certainly better to extend forgiveness than to withhold it. Certainly better to extend it than to hold it. For he teaches us in the same manner of prayer, Matthew 6, 15, he concludes that portion of prayer and dialogue with his disciples. And he tells them, if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. So he goes back, we go back to that parable in Matthew 18. We don't want to be that servant who, who gets forgiveness but is unwilling to give it to others. We don't want to be that servant who freely receives the forgiveness of Christ for all of our many trespasses, for all of our shortcomings, the ones we're aware of and the ones we're not. We don't want to be that servant who receives it but yet is unwilling and unable to extend that same kindness to those who have trespassed against us. The Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. It's like if you want forgiveness, then you've got to be willing to give it. Christ will forgive you absolutely, but don't live your life holding forgiveness from others who trespass against you. I'm sure if we did a, a, a poll by raising of hands, all of our hands would go up for someone who has trespassed against us. And hopefully our hands would go up Acknowledging, and I'm sure I have somehow trespassed against someone else. The final statement, seven, the first, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He's hanging on the cross, gasping for air, trying to breathe. And he uses his final breaths to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they have done. Here's the thing, if you need forgiveness, the Bible is very clear, just ask. If you're living a life of condemnation and guilt and shame over anything, here's the thing, you don't have to. Just ask Jesus to forgive you. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us that if we will confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The thing that stops us from getting forgiveness is, is not asking. If we will just ask Christ, he will extend forgiveness. If you're a person who lives with great condemnation over your life because you may feel like you just don't have it all together, but you want to have it all together, and you're trying to get it all together, but every day you can't seem to get it all together, the answer is not found in you getting it all together. The answer is found in you just asking, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. Part of the song we sing, holiness is Christ in me. It's not you following all the letters of the law. It's not you dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, and trying to be perfect in your tiptoes across the tulips. It's you acknowledging, I'm frail, I'm broken, I'm a mess, I'm a wreck, I got issues. All God's children got issues. We have issues. I got issues, you got issues. We all got issues. But we don't have to live with those issues reigning and ruling over us and pouring down condemnation. No, Christ offers forgiveness even when we don't know what we are doing. But also, if you need to forgive someone, Just say the words, I forgive whomever. And friends, depending on the degree of transgression that was caused against you, you may have to say, I forgive whoever, 
70 times 7. Meaning it may be a little while before it really, really, really just settles down on the inside of your heart. When that person's name is mentioned. When the memory of that situation comes back around. How does it make you feel? If it still makes you feel angst, if it still makes you feel hatred, if it still makes you feel anger, if it still makes you feel bitter, if it still makes you feel resentful, here's the thing. No condemnation. Just say, I forgive. I forgive. There have been situations in my own life where things that have happened to me from someone else that hurt pretty bad, hurt awful, that I had to constantly, anytime their name was mentioned or anytime my mind went there, I just had to say, Lord, I forgive. I just forgive them. I'm not going to hold them to it. I'm not going to keep them to it. Let them go. Whatever they want to do, they do. But for me, I'm going to let you live in me and I want your bigness to be great in me I want your love to be real I want your forgiveness to be real and Lord I don't want to keep going like a prisoner trapped because I can't forgive that's what unforgiveness will do it will not make them a prisoner you holding unforgiveness towards someone doesn't make them a prisoner it makes you a prisoner because they all gone on doing their thing whether it's good or bad or whatever but you are a prisoner when you can't forgive someone else And friends, life's too short to be a prisoner. Life is too short to be a prisoner, especially a prisoner of unforgiveness. His final statement, seven, first one, Father, forgive. The second one, he said this. He said this speaking to one of the two prisoners that were hanging there on the cross next to him. He said, today you will be with me in paradise you will be with me in paradise two convicted prisoners one of them mocking him the other just asked Jesus to simply hey will you remember me all the others around who were scoffing and mocking were asking Jesus hey perform a miracle why don't you get yourself off the cross if you really are the Messiah This criminal, hearing it, seeing it, realizing, I deserve what I get, but I'm asking the one who did nothing. There seems to be something profound and special about him. Lord, will you remember me? And what does he tell him? Absolutely. Today, he said, most assuredly, I will remember you today. You will be with me in paradise. When you take your final breath, you will be with me. He just wanted to be remembered. You know, we all like to be remembered. None of us like to be forgotten. None of us like to be forgotten. We all want to be remembered in some way, in some form, in our life. And I love the fact that when we call on Jesus, salvation enters our hearts and heaven becomes our new home. In fact, it's talked about In the book of Revelation that when you call on Christ Jesus in salvation. That your name is written down in a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's not one that's talked about so much. But I wanted to talk about it for a minute today. It's found in in Revelation chapter 20. If you want to make a note and it will be here on the screen. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. is part of this grandiose vision that John had. 
He said this in verse 11. He said, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. Think about that. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. The death and the grave gave up their dead. And all who were judged according to their deeds. The death and, and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the fire. This, is, uh, this lake of fire is the second death. In verse 15, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Next chapter, verse 1, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. Now, I'd love to just read this whole chapter to you. It's so amazing. You can go back and read it on your own. But skip to the last verse there of chapter 21, verse 27. It says, Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Apostle Peter, when his first message in Acts chapter 2, remember Peter, he had denied the Lord three times, felt awful about it. And then in one of the gospels, gospel accounts, as they ran to the grave on the third day and found it empty, they were told one of the witnesses said, hey, go back and tell the others and also tell Peter. I love that. I can't imagine how bad Peter felt. He denied the Lord three times. He was his, one of his closest companions. He's a top three in the circle of relationship. I can't imagine the weight of guilt that he felt. The shame. He rejected the Lord. The Lord had been so good to him. God was so good to him and he was in a weak spot, a weak moment. He denied him three times. I love that gospel account. Don't forget, when you tell everybody else, tell Peter. Tell Peter. And then on, it was on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. They had spent some time praying. God pouring his spirit out on the earth for the first time. The church was becoming a start with the church was being created. Peter preaches his first sermon. And in that first sermon, he says in Acts 2, 21, said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think the Holy Spirit giving Peter those words to utter probably brought profound peace and reassurance to Peter's life. Because in the time of the Lord, before his ascension to heaven, when he spent about... 40 days on earth after his resurrection, he spent time with his disciples, just, re, just kind of clarifying some things, making sure they're good to go, and all this, just reassuring them. And he has this private conversation with Peter. And he asked him three times, do you love me? And every time Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And he basically gives him a call to, and a commission to follow out. And then here, Peter gets to do that for the first time to preach to many thousands of people. And he says, hey, everyone, 
who just calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit gave Peter those words to say, everyone. Because that meant Peter was included. And if certainly, if, come on, if Peter can be included, I think I can slide in there too. I think we all can. Everyone is big enough for the world. I love that. Everyone. He didn't name a certain religion, a certain denomination, a certain demographic. No. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I love that because Peter was part of a story that John's gospel records in John chapter 8. It's a story about not only forgiveness, but about freedom. The story goes that Jesus had been in the temple teaching and talking, and and a group of men had rushed in and brought this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Always the question, where's the dude? He was just as naked as she was. They bring her in before him and they said, hey, teacher, the law of Moses said we can stone the ones who have committed adultery like this. What do you say? Obviously, this whole thing was a scheme. It was a trap to try to catch Jesus and trick him. He stoops down and starts to just kind of draw or write in the sand. All types of messages have been, to, have been formed over what did the Lord write in the sand. I don't know. Not, nobody really knows. It doesn't ever say. Maybe was, he was having a Twix moment. You know this commercial Twix? He Ask an important question. Oh, fill your mouth. Take a moment to pause and think. He stands back up and he says, here, how about this? Anyone who has never had any sin in their life, you go ahead and throw that first stone at her. Man. You start hearing the thuds of stones dropping and everyone's starting backing out and leaving and there's no one else around, no accusers around and Jesus looks at the woman and he he says, look around, where are all these people who said they were accusing you? She said, I don't see anybody. He said, I don't either. And then he says these words right here. I I pulled it from the Passion Translation in John 8, verse 11. Told her, I don't condemn you, but here, here it is. Go, and from now on, be free from a life of sin. He said, lady, I don't know your name. I'm vaguely familiar with your story. But I cleared the room of accusers for you. And I don't condemn you either. But what I do tell you is this. Go and be free from a life of sin. Not only can you be forgiven. Not only can we be forgiven. But in Christ Jesus, we can be free from the entrapment of sin in our life. I think it, one, of the, one of the worst tragedies on this earth that an individual can go through is to have faith in Christ but to still remain stuck in sin. And in Christ Jesus, he offers forgiveness 
and he gives it, but he also offers freedom with an empowerment to not allow it to take over our life anymore. That we can be free. We can be free. So not only does he want our name written in the Lamb's book of life, but God wants the Lamb to be alive in our life. It's one thing to have the old song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. And to have our name on the roll of the directory of a church. And it's good, and I'm glad, and I'm very, very, very thankful that God never forgets a name, and he writes it down, and he has written my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. But you know what he wants? Not only does he want to do that, but he wants the Lamb to be alive inside of us. As John John said, there he goes, the Lamb of God who retakes away the sin of the world, removes it, not only forgives, but frees our life from the entrapment that sin can bring. Jesus wants us to know that in our habits and our hang-ups, the things that set us back and hold us down, Jesus wants us to know that he is the one, the only one, who can free us from those entrapments. He is the only one who can free us from our dirty habits and our nasty hang-ups. He is the only one who can deliver us from our setbacks and help create a comeback in our life. Everybody loves a good comeback story, and we all have them in our life. But the only way they're guaranteed to stick and to stay is when Jesus creates the comeback moment. And he created the comeback moment 2,000 years ago when he hung on a cross between heaven and earth. And out of his final breath, he gave seven statements. The first be forgiven the second one be free he told that prisoner that convicted prisoner on the cross when he said today you will be with me he was telling him let it all go your sins your trespasses your life of crime and disrespect for this world it is all taken care of today you will be with me that cross will not hold you just like it will not hold me you will be with me in paradise you will be free that is what god in christ jesus offers us god never forgets a name i'm mesmerized by people who never forget names Ever since I met this one particular pastor 20 years ago, well, I don't know how long, it was maybe 15 years ago, his name is Pastor Kirk Pancratz. He's the founding pastor of Church of the Harvest in Oklahoma City and the founding pastor of Youth America, summer camp, ministry, leadership, national movement of young people forever and ever for over 30 years. I met him. And I have encountered him many numerous times over the last 15 years. And there has been many days gone by. And yeah, many years have gone by since I had seen him. And he, I walk up to him. And obviously, I know who he is. Hey, Pastor Kirk, it's so good to see you. Hey, Jeremy, how are you? <laughs> Shut up, man. How do you know my name? I played like foosball with you once and you remember my name. Don't you love it when your name gets remembered when you don't have to wear the name tag? Ever since I met him, I have so tried to make that a practice in my life, and I'm nowhere near as good as he is. God never forgets a name. He never forgets a face. 
He always writes it down. In fact, the imprint of our soul is on the imprint of his palms. He just looks. Ah, there she is, Morgan. There he is, James. Yeah, there she is, Neva. <laughs> right there. There he is, Randy. See him. He writes it down. He writes it down. And I love the fact that he doesn't write down all of our mistakes. But as far as the east is from the west, the Bible tells us, so as he removed our trespasses against us. So anytime you may feel forgotten, anytime you may feel betrayed, anytime you may feel burdened or condemned, here's what you do. You just say, Jesus, will you remember me? <laughs> and he will always say, today, I remember you.